Hello and welcome to the Real Estate Nerds Podcast. On this Bad Beats episode, we will explore the human side of real estate investing with a seasoned pro about to make the legendary worst deal of their life. A deal isn't just the investment, it is also the person. Stay with us and learn what it takes to be the best investor. Hi, and welcome to the Real Estate Nerds Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Royal-Smith, the owner of Royal Legal Solutions, your one-stop shop for everything real estate and business asset protection. Um, I'm here with a good friend of mine, uh, Trevor Robinson. Uh, he is a phenomenal investor. I've known him uh, to be one of the smartest tactical minds uh, that I've had the pleasure of getting to know uh, here personally um, in recent history. And uh, Trevor, thanks for coming on the show uh, here today. I understand we're going to share a couple of different stories, some best deals, some worst deals. Um, you know, what do we need to know about uh, you, Trevor, for the audience uh, so they can get like a good foundation of who you are, you know, going into these deals so they'll kind of get a, you know, a look inside your mind just here initially. Absolutely. Um, thanks for having me. I'm a Midwestern guy, 32 years old, um, from the middle of Missouri, a college town. Um, pretty typical, normal guy. Um, I didn't, I was one of those that went to college and was very bored in class, so on and so forth. It was in business school and couldn't understand why I was taking on debt with basically no no future after graduation with a generic degree. Uh, so from there, I dropped out, um, got joined in and partnered on a tattoo shop, didn't make a penny off it, lost money. Um, the next endeavor I did was cell phone repairs and screen refurbishing, which turned out to be um, extremely lucrative. And I kind of lucked out into that. And I knew that I didn't want to actively manage or work basically not work, but I don't want to actively be involved in day-to-day -day operations on um, pretty much anything that I do. I like to macro manage. So I knew the way to do that was to leverage my, my profits from the business into real estate. And that's how I got here. Kind of always knew I wanted to be wealthy, but knew I'd never cut it in the corporate world. And I would never be able to go through school and be a doctor or something like that. So I was always taught or, you know, had heard that real estate is not a get rich quick scheme, but it's a get rich scheme. And so I kind of always stuck in my mind and I explored it from there. That's awesome, Trevor. Yeah. I mean, I think it's what, what really makes your story uh, pretty compelling is that, you know, so many things like didn't work for you, you know, quote unquote, didn't work for you along the way. Right. Yeah. I mean, like it's, it's like one of those things that I think a lot of people run into and they're kind of, they feel like they're stuck and railroaded into a particular way that they have to live. Like, Oh, I got to go through my school. I got to get this particular type of job. And, and, you know, you, you kind of like slough it off of being like, oh, I had a couple of ventures that went bad and I totally dropped out of school and it's no big deal. Yeah. I just kind of went with it. But I think a lot of people are probably afraid to do something like that, you know, because they're afraid of what the downside would be. But, but it could be that the downside is actually much worse and trying to live a life that you're not actually built to live, like trying to live in corporate America, which you're like, yeah, that's not me. Dude, 100, 110%. I mean, we could go have a 10-hour podcast just on student loans and how I think they're going to, you know, basically bankrupt our youth. Um, but no, you're exactly right. And I mean, we've, we've kind of steered to an over-educated society in my sense where we don't have labor. And so you'll see it now. That's why a lot of people come out and make, you know, 30 grand a year out of college with 100 grand in debt but we can't find an electrician or a plumber to save our life. So it's funny that you say that. And especially like the way I look at it too with school is, I mean, you can go to school at any age when you have an opportunity to kind of strike while the iron is hot, or if you find a, a niche or something like that, like in my opinion, you have to go after it. 
I mean, if I fail, I can always go back to school, but you might as well go and try and, and take some risk before you do that. And that's kind of what I did and it worked for me. And I know a lot of other friends that have kind of done the same. And in my opinion, unless you're going to be a specialized career, like an attorney, an asset attorney, then there's really no need for you to go to college or, you know, a nurse or an accountant or something like that. But absolutely. Yeah, it really makes a lot of sense if you need a particular title to do the type of work that you need, but just not for like information, you know, and I think I love, really love the way that you characterize like how you evaluate the risk there. Um, because if you're, you're looking at risk is not like absolute risk, like, oh, it might not work out, which is what stops a lot of people from taking action. You're, it seems like you're looking at risk as saying like, how, how easily could I reverse the situation if this doesn't work out and be exactly where I am today? I was saying like, yeah, I can drop out. I can try real estate because you know, my worst case scenario is I just pop right back into school. So what really is the risk? No, for sure. I mean, you can't be scared to fail. I see that a lot of times and it, um, you know, where people are, oh, he went bankrupt or he went belly up. And to me, honestly, I mean, it's not good to go out of business, obviously, but I look at that as sometimes positives. If you can fall and get back up, a lot of really successful people fail over and over and over and over again. But if you honestly have that drive to pick up and keep going, you're eventually, in my opinion, going to find what works for you and you'll be successful. Yeah, I think so, man. And I think there's also another misnomer in here from doing this podcast with a lot of really, really great successful people that have failed and really had pretty blunderous investments and sometimes in their life is that there's this misconception that when you shoot really big and then you fail, you fail all the way, like all yeah. the way down below ground zero from where you're before. And most of the time what I see happens is, is that people took like really big goals, they shot through the stars and they quote unquote failed on hitting the stars. So they landed on the moon. You know, yeah. Like, yeah, that's still pretty damn good, you know, exactly. with what I do. And if you're diversified and stuff, like I'll still have projects that didn't go the greatest or weren't the best. But if I had that spread over 200 different projects or 50 projects, whatever, you know, those the others can make up for those losses. So I completely agree. It's it's not a black and white or absolute thing sometimes. And sometimes one person's failure would be another person's success. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I. Yeah, it just depends on how high you're shooting, right? If you're shooting high enough, right? Even if you fail, you're better off than sometimes your friends that never, they shot too low or didn't do anything at all, you know? Yeah, for sure. That's what you're going to get paired yourself with. But let's jump into uh, talking about some of these deals here, uh, Trevor. Let's, uh, let's jump into one of the, one of the bad deals. And what's the, uh, what's the context around that deal about like who, you know, what's going on before you even get in this deal so we can kind of set the stage for, you know, what's going on, you know, your life, your investments, you know, and get a, get a backdrop yeah. of that. Cool. So cell phone shop started that leveraged the money into real estate and started with, uh, with basically uh, formulas. So I'd use gross rent multipliers to value real estate. And then I'd kind of toy with rents to see, you know, okay, um, can I get basically a good deal? So I do all add value investment, which is basically just saying I find rundown places or a place where I can add an extra bedroom, separate a house into a duplex, so on and so forth. So that's kind of how I got started. And all those were really good deals. I also bought at a good time. Most of them were in 2014. You could still find little steals here and there. Um, so my first bad deal I'd say I got into was a remodel low income area, um, paid 82 grand for it. It probably needed $50,000 in work. So I'm about 135. Um, that was what I gauged. It definitely went over that by about $10,000. And then that particular deal 
had burned down twice in the meantime. So because of it's a low income area, I've had a lot of the tenants typically don't take care of it as well as of a higher income area. Um, that one again burnt down twice and I probably spent more than I'd like to. Also, I don't, you know, some people make a lot of money in low income, trailer park, that kind of um, investment, which have very high margins. The problem with a lot of those, in my opinion, they don't appreciate. In fact, actually a lot of them will depreciate. So for me, I would love to get out of that, that particular property, but I can't. Like I'm too far into it and it makes sense for me to just hold it and kind of take the loss. That's probably one of the worst deals I had. I would contribute it a lot to basically being young and eager. Like I had the money and I wanted to spend it. So that was me four years ago or when I first started. Now, like I can be cool and collected and just sit in what I call wait with a loaded gun. So I can sit on my cash, have financing lined up, but if it doesn't hit those numbers, I don't want it. And I'm not pushing or manipulating myself to get there if that makes sense. That deal, all I could see was the upside. I was blinded and fogged at that early age of investment that I couldn't see the downside at all. I was literally manipulating myself into buying it just because I didn't want to quote unquote lose the deal, which is yeah. something that I myself and a lot of investors deal with as well. So it sounded like one of those uh, kinds of things that I probably didn't meet your criteria initially to go into it, but then you, you, you talked yourself into the deal. Like yes, you that, into that's it. Exactly, exactly right. I'm glad you brought it up like that. I'll talk, I would do that, talk myself into deals. So since then, I totally wrote off low income property. So I just X'd it out if I'm personally managing it. Um, learn from that deal not to do that. And then it's just, you have, I feel that your investments are a lot less liquid in that market than say if you're in kind of a nicer A or B property, if we're using a grading scale, that stuff easier to sell and get rid of. So yes, you're exactly right. It didn't hit my criteria. I've heard of investors before talk about, um, you know, a lot of my clients and, and, and some of the properties I've actually run into well, is that when you get into the lower income areas, you're trying to do personal management. If you're not it takes like a certain personality to be comfortable and also to want to try to manage properties that are like that because it can take a lot more energy. It's like much more of like, uh, it can be a much more abrasive kind of transaction. Yeah, to get you gotta, be, you gotta right? be a bulldog. Yeah. So it's exactly, I mean, you're right in that some of those you have to be a lot more stern and assertive and you'll have to deal with things you don't. Um, it does take a certain individual. You're exactly right. Like when I picture someone that would be great and low-income housing it's like a stern east coast guy that you know doesn't put up with any crap that kind of thing so exactly you're you're exactly right it takes a very certain individual to handle um section eight low-income housing so on and so forth yeah and there's a huge cost to that if you uh if you try to manage it on your own too right which is you end up spending a lot of energy trying to trace a couple of dollars that are there instead of using that energy to find your next great deal, right? So you're like, you're trying to do something maybe that you're like not the best at, not necessarily your situation. I'm just saying I find people that yeah. run into that where they're like, oh, I get this return. It's great. And I was like, well, how much of your time are you spending having to get that return? Because then it's not a true return once you well, average like all your time into it. And let's think about it. Why are we getting into real estate anyways? It's passive income. At what point do you manage so much kind of that high, high uh, maintenance property to where it's really not even like passive income anymore because you're dealing with it every day. So yeah. it's completely right on that. And that's why, I mean, I try and systemize everything, but there's certain things that you just can't get past in that demographic. Yeah, absolutely. And how did you turn that deal around? You just hold on to it and just keep cash flowing I, it and then get yeah, property I mean, manager? I hold, 
I hold it and we do pretty well. I gross 1900 a month off it and I'm probably in it for 140, which really isn't bad. I mean, that's a pretty, pretty big flow. You know, my note, which is just P and I is I think 800 a month. So, I mean, I have 1100 left over every month or, you know, 12, $13,000 a year pre-expense. It definitely flows, but it's one of those just everything. It's like the money pit movie, like everything that goes wrong went wrong with it. And sometimes it's just like one of those you can't avoid. Um, also, like touching back to that, which I think is a really good advice for anyone that's a newcomer investor, is I don't recommend getting into low income ones because banking looks at the type of properties you hold. So your foundation of your portfolio is the most important part because you, if you have red flag properties or properties that don't flow well, you're not covering your global debt, no one will want to give you money. If you have good be working class or higher end properties and you have them in the running well, the faucet's gonna be turned on with lending and you'll be able to grow and make a lot more money a lot quicker. Yeah, can you talk a little bit more about that, about how you're, you're shaping your portfolio um, strategically to be able to um, get the best financing? Yes, absolutely. So like how I did it from the start and I'll kind of walk it to you how I do it now. From the start, I went after duplexes and either I would say C plus, B minus areas working class, mixed in with some housing, single families, good little ones like that. I would primarily target under rented ones. So, you know, I bought places where there were, you know, residential leases were 25 years old, which is, you can see um, they're under rented pretty bad. So what I would do is go in there, fix them up and then raise the rents up. So I just had this tremendously high cash flowing property in a good area. Now at that point, I would either refinance them so I would go after I'd raise my rents, I'd refinance it because everything's based on what you get in rents. So if I have higher rents, it's higher value. And a lot of times I'd take a line of credit against the equity and purchase again. And so I started off my foundation getting those, I'd probably 10 to 15, maybe even 20 in those really good areas. And then that's when I took a little jump and got into some small commercial and multifam, went into fourplex, eightplex, stuff like that. Um, but it made lending so much easier because I was able to go to a bank and say, hey, look, these 10 I have, you know, I'm at a 1.5 global debt. You guys only require a 1.25. So I'm doubling what they want to see. They'll pretty much lend to you within reason. Now, if I go in there and I have struggling properties that are in a crap area, I mean, your bank is pretty much your partner on the deal. If you're at 80-20, they own 80% of that property. They own more of it than you do in a sense, and that's how I look at it. So a lot of them don't want to buy that stuff just like other people would. So the better the property, the easier it is to be lent. Now I do a lot of, um, I do a lot of construction loans on remodeling and then I just refinance them at the end. So say I buy a property, Scott, what I'll do is I'll take it out on a construction note. I'm paying interest only. I'm, I'm basically borrowing all of the repairs and the purchase price in one. So I pay interest only while I'm on what I call, you know, the phases or until stabilization. And once I get to the end, I'll use the new appraisal and then I'll refinance that construction note into either like, you know, a, a 20 year regular commercial note or whatever I can get kind of the best rate and financing on. And that's kind of how I go now. So most people ask me, you know, Oh my gosh, how are you at such a young age doing this? And a lot of it is I'm not coming into deals. Like I'm, I'm using another deal to leverage against it. And at the end I've raised the value up so much. I try and walk out of deals with no money in them or very little. 
is that part of like what makes that strategy successful for you because you have like a background in the actual flipping and construction area of it? Because I imagine that would be like a limiting factor for a lot of people trying to do it. Like, oh, I don't really understand. I'm the le least handy person you know. I, I can fix cell phones, I can fix computers, I can hardly change a light bulb. But what I had to do was understand how construction is and learn when to, you know, kind of vertically integrate or just for, you know, less fancy terms, do the work myself or with my own company and when to sub it out to a contractor. I lost a lot of money on projects at first, not knowing what I was doing and kind of just like jumping in head first. Um, I learned a lot. I was able to adapt and learn from my mistakes and, and kind of cut those losses or not lose as much. But I mean, yeah, that's, that's basically I learned from doing it and then trying to talk to other investors. So I always tell people this and I love helping people out. Like I'm not trying to sell a book or anything. I'm just passionate about real estate. Everyone, when they go to the blackjack table, you know, they want to tell you about that night. They took the dealer for 2000, $3,000. Nobody wants to tell you about that time. They went and blew their whole paycheck like an idiot, maybe had too many beers, spent their money. So it's kind of the same thing. Like when you talk to guys like myself or anybody like, don't be afraid to say, hey, I really appreciate you sharing your knowledge. Can you tell me some things that kind of slowed you down or what hurt? And that's where I've helped out a lot is basically I call I like losing other people's money mentally. So like I'd rather hear about how you blundered a deal and then know not to put that into what I'm going into next. That's helped me a lot, especially starting after this last recession. I'm young. A lot of old guys say, well, you've never been through a recession before. You don't know what you're talking about. And it's like, well, yeah, I haven't, but I sure like to listen to your stories about it so I can kind of be prepared for when that next swing comes. Yeah, absolutely. And that's actually what Real Estate Nerds is really founded on is about being able to try to learn the lessons from other people, right? So we don't have to learn them on our own. That's part of like, and that's why it makes it, I think, uh, you know, something that's worthwhile is because that's how you actually save big dollars. Yeah, in, absolutely. In education, you know? I'm, I'm I mean, I, there's a couple books that I've read that literally I bet have saved me millions of dollars and lost just because learning from the other people's and those are the best books you want to read. You don't want to read the get rich quick schemes that I'm, you know, I did this, I did that. You want to hear those humble books about where somebody might've lost it all or what they did wrong, so on and so forth. But those are what great books. What books are those? My favorite book, man, and I should probably get a check from him, is <laughs> Manny Koshbin's Contrarian Playbook. This book is the best book for new investors. It is written at probably, you know, like an eighth grade level. And I mean that as a compliment. He dumbs down the deals so anyone can explain it. So like when I hire on new agents or property managers or really anyone that just wants to better themselves financially, I have them read that book. Um, I'd say for a mid-level, like if you're listening to this and you've already got 10, 15, 20 units and you've got a pretty good grasp, it's called Confessions of a Real Estate Entrepreneur. That one is a little bit more hefty. Like there's some chapters where even I'm like, whoa, what's that mean? Do I need to contact my attorney friend or an accountant? Like so on and so forth. But they bring up that guy also talks about a lot of losses. Um, he was an attorney like you and a developer as well. So he's, he, he writes like an attorney or it's a little bit, it's more articulate than the other one. Gotcha. Well, those are awesome books, man. I'm always a huge fan of uh, and a proponent of people reading. I mean, it's like the lost art of acquiring information as like you pick up a good book and crush yeah, it. For sure. Know? 
there's yeah. a good mix. I mean, that's how like we connected was Reddit, you know, which is like the new age of investing. And I mean, I mean, I talked to a lot of guys off Reddit. That's probably your best new age tool because it's not commercialized really. You know, you almost get downvoted or banned if you start to try and promote your own book. So I'm in there, you know, I'm probably mentoring 10, 20 guys at a time on that kind of stuff. But also same thing. There's some great old books. I mean, that you can really learn a lot from. So it's almost, I'm glad you put that up. I mean, we need to hybrid it. There needs to be a, a mix of both yeah absolutely man I, I really enjoy it when interacting with groups of people um, and encourage everybody to try to find like a group that you interact with that one you like talking to and two has like a similar base of knowledge you know so everybody's kind of speaking the same language to each other like they've read you know some of the similar stuff they're doing kind of similar types of deals and that'll give you like a good baseline for it so um, that's awesome that you're, you know, engaging on that platform. Did you want to go through, uh, Trevor, uh, one of the, the better deals, uh, that you, that you've done or what's your yeah. best deal? So my best and luckiest deal was, and I hope the college isn't listening to this, but I saw our local college expanding a certain way and I held property there. So I boxed them in like physically, like, I guess, you know, geographically, I boxed them in and bought in between themselves and mine in the college. And then I just went and turned around and flipped it to them. So I had a purchase price of 550,000 and I sold it two weeks later with no commission, no closing costs for 650,000. So that was probably like my easiest deal. I mean, I guess like there was some strategy to it and I'm probably underselling myself, but I was pretty lucky too. Like I, I knew that the, you know, colleges, anything that involves a board or a committee moves a whole lot slower than you. So if you're an investor, that's something you should always think about. Look at schools, state entities, things like that. And where you can see growth coming buy around them. They're going to want to get you out of there and they can pay. And a lot of times they'll pay you more than they should. You know, I sold that same, same college, some more property and I marked it up, you know, 40% of what I had paid for it a couple of years. That was probably my best deal that, you know, I kind of just lucked out on or was at the right place, right time. The most calculated was an apartment complex I did and basically on an income approach. So like when they're valuing anything over basically like six to eight units, they use your income. So I found the probably most rundown apartment complex in the best area. The rents were averaging 660. I was able to put about 20,000 a unit in, maybe a little bit more, about a million, I think 1.2 million, 1.3. So my purchase price was two seven. I put one three in it. So my total buy-in was four million. Now I raised the rents up to eleven hundred. So on an income approach, I think it valued in at like five point six, five point seven million. So that was probably my biggest actual gain in just making money. It took two years, but I was able to pull out all of my cash out of that deal. So it took me two years. I mean, I definitely some sleepless nights and pulling my hair out, figuring out how I'm going to get this done. But upon stabilization, I mean, now I own an asset that's worth close to $6 million and I don't have a penny in it. Well, how do you, uh, what is that, that part of your, what do you attribute that, as I should say, as to your mindset around it to be able to have that kind of patience, right? I think a lot of people are thinking, hey, you know, it's like slow term, you know, I'm cash flowing it, I'll hold on to it. If it goes up, that's great, but I'm cash flowing. So, you know, I'm going to be okay up or down and where it sounds like some of the deal you're doing there, you're like, oh, I'm pulling my hair out. I'm still waiting for two years. Like that sounds like you have to have quite a bit of, um, you know, grit to make it through that type of investment. Is that right or no? Yes, absolutely. And sometimes like real estate is not short-sighted. I mean, some of this stuff, which I've never done it. I've flipped like two, I flipped a house and a condo 
maybe another one I'm forgetting about it, but most of my stuff is buy and hold, or if I can sell it for, you know, a, obnoxiously amount more than what I paid for it, I'll do that. But what I look at is more like, I mean, some of my deals, dude, they're not going to be profitable for three or four years. But the thing is, I'll t one, I can take all those losses on my taxes, which is why a lot of people get in real estate anyways. And those, I mean, if I'm waiting three or four years on my cash, I'm waiting to have huge, massive returns or basically like a big asset in my portfolio like that. Like once you get one apartment complex or something there, it's so easy to kind of borrow against that or use that to help to get other stuff or just pull lines of credit. If you want to sit and wait for the next recession, things like that. That's kind of what I'm doing now. But real estate is not, and that's one thing that I've learned and I learn more and more is that it's not that one dimensional. There's a guy making a killing off the trailer park. There's a guy making a killing off park place. And there's about a thousand plays in between or more. So the older I get, the more I'll actually diversify my real estate. So at first it was duplexes, you know, single families, duplexes, single families. Well, then I bought some office space that I bought, you know, some of this, then I had money to play with flipping and so on and so forth. And that's kind of how, I just look at it as a lot less one dimensional and there's other avenues. So um, when, when you're looking at like, you know, all of these different plays that you can do, and a lot of times we see um, people like swimming outside their lane, so to speak, and that's how they end up losing a bunch of money. And so guys yeah. like, hey, I'm used to like doing the duplexes and whatnot, and now I'm gonna go ahead and jump to do an apartment complex, but an apartment complex is a very different deal where the upsides can be a lot bigger, but also if you screw it up, you can also yeah. be in a hell of a lot of trouble. Yeah. So what were you doing whenever you're venturing into a new asset class to ensure that, you know, you're you know, checking the boxes correctly to make sure that you're not making a mistake? Do you bring in like a mentor to be able to partner with on your first couple of assets anytime you do something new or? Um, great question. Kind of like two parts. What, what I look for, I'm very, I'm very particular or almost have a checklist or a, I'm very formulatic. You know, I use formulas for everything, how it is. So when I go into those other ventures, one, I learn how they're valued. So what is the cap rate they're using? What are the expenses that you see on average? You know, obviously commercial that's triple netted or has, you know, the tenant paying every expense, you have a lot less expenses than a low income apartment complex. So learning those, um, and basically the calculations, but on to the next point, which is a great point. I mean, I've got an appraiser in town that I just tell him, I say, Hey, because a lot of times people don't want to tell appraisers what they paid for it, what the banks, people are very private. I tell this guy, anything you want to know about anything I own, because sometimes I'll be next to stuff he's appraising. I'll tell you the whole deal. And I said, in turn, when I have questions about learning this stuff, let me know. He's so cool and helps me so much. I can just call him. He'll explain how to value that. If you're okay, if you're looking at it, use this cap rate, use this expense ratio, so on and so forth. My appraiser has actually become a really good friend in business where it's like super helpful. Always have, you know, you have two ears and one mouth for a reason, which is, sounds odd because I'm talking the whole time, but always listen to other people, man. Like always listen to, you know, your attorney, your accountant, they'll all tell you different things. My two biggest best friends in business, appraiser, my banker and my insurance guy. I can pretty much know what my expenses are at any time. And then I can get an insurance quote. You know, I already know what my principal interest taxes will be. And then the appraiser, we kind of use those for the expense ratio. And with that, you can gauge what anything's worth. Me no and, kidding. 
networking with people like you and others. Like, I mean, talk to other investors, find people like myself, go to Reddit and go to the real estate investing sub, go there and you'll find a ton of different people that have a ton of different approaches and you'll take a little bit off everybody's plate. No, that's fantastic. And so just to, to recap on that, you were talking about the most important people for you are going to be your banker, your insurance guy, and your appraiser, so, right? For myself, yes. That helps yeah. me value deals and kind of know what different markets are. If I'm going out of market, say I want to go down to Austin, where you're from, I'm going to call, instead of calling agents and stuff, I'll call an appraisal and say, or appraiser and say, hey, What's your cap rate going down there for a multifam? What about office space? What about B-class single family? You know what I mean? And they'll give me all that. And then I can go into a market pretty much fully loaded. And so it's just being able to grab that information from, from knowing what the appraisers are going to do is going to tell you in turn how the banks are going to look at this particular piece to know whether they're going to turn on the faucet or not for you. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to know exactly what, how they're going to feel about it. When I go to the bank, typically I already know without asking them, they're going to approve the deal. If I can show something that just has a huge cash flow or performs better than market average, I'm going to be able to get that deal done. And, and the insurance person in there is really just going to tell you what's the extra expense that you wouldn't otherwise be able to know from the, the loan rates, essentially, yes. right? And loan and cap rates. So holding costs is another thing. I mean, I just want to know where I'm at. So I, you know, with a Zillow calculator or anything, I can calculate P&I. Well, I own in Missouri and I own in Florida. Missouri has awesome property taxes that are really low. Florida does not. Same with insurance. There's not a whole lot that can happen in Missouri besides like a freak tornado, you know, in Florida, you have flooding, so on, so forth. So those are important, especially when you get bigger and go out of market, you know, you'll need to learn. Like if you go buy in California or something and don't think about, or Florida, you don't think about the tax rates, you know, you pay significantly more. Same Texas a little bit. I noticed Texas has higher property tax because they don't have income tax. You know, the government will get you either way. It's just however they classify the tax. So, you know, I've noticed that in areas with no, pro uh, uh, with no income tax, property taxes are significantly higher yeah that's right well that's good and you're pulling a lot of that information around what you're doing with the taxes just simply through doing your zillow calculations and um, yeah. looking at some of these online tools to be able to just do quick spec work on what the numbers have to look like absolutely and i like we have a little thing like going hybrid here we're old school new school old school way which i've gotten some huge deals on i write people from the assessor pages so tax documents and stuff online all that deeds, they'll show you who owns that property or at least the mailing address and LLC. I've written letters and a lot of people said, dude, that's stupid. You'll never get there. I scored one of my best deals just writing handwritten letters that I wanted to buy their property. So that's another really good lead system for a lot of you guys trying to come up. If you've already got a one or two single families or duplexes in an area, you want to get more, start writing the people around you and you'll notice the same name might have three or four in a row. Those are the deals to go after. Those are the ones that are going to make you the big money. And when do you, why do you think that those are the ones that make you the big money? Just because now you're controlling a bigger block of the real estate, yeah. so you have better control over the, the whole scope? One, expenses start to lower when you owe more condensed. You know, you send your, you know, if you're, you have 20 houses spread out and you're getting each of your lawns mowed, that's 30 bucks, that's $600 every week. Now, if I've got 30 in one area, you know, I'll either have one of my guys mow them or start my own mowing company or crew to supplement income, or I'll just, you know, it just, it lowers your, your basically your expense down. Also, I'm changing filters going through. It's a lot faster and a lot easier. No, and you can kind of leverage them together more easier too. I've noticed than lending. 
Yeah, and you can batch them. You can batch all the work together with it, right? And then you're controlling like a bare section of the real estate. So I say like, if this is like an appreciating area, or if I want to do improvements, I can. I don't. I can improve my building and also know that all the rest of the buildings can improve too. And I just don't have like some really bad buildings that are going to bring my property values down. You get more control, right? Yeah. Everything. That's awesome, Trevor. Um, I think I think we're uh, <clears throat> we're just about out of time um, here today. So I always like to recap with just like a lesson learned um, from the interview today. And one of the pieces that I think is a really good takeaway um, uh, for uh, for myself is really about saying like, okay, well, how can we do some hybrid uh, pieces into you know what do we think that we're actually doing here? Like not all of the old school methods are are bad. Like those can still be used, but there's also some you know new technology around saying like how can we quickly price out a property by using an insurance uh, guy and using your your banker, using your appraiser um, to be able to to get those numbers as well as you know going onto resources like Reddit, you know, and the real estate investing like Reddit. So I've I've been on Reddit for a long time, and I got to tell everybody here um, that that might be thinking Trevor's like, oh, what are you doing, you know, on Reddit. Uh, it's actually so, it's such an amazing community of people where you can crowdsource all kinds of information where people just sitting at home for some reason uh, all like to get together and share info together. And it's totally free and you find some really, really smart people um, that are on there that are just looking to connect um, and talk and, and uh, maybe you never meet any of these people face to face or you can pick up the phone, but they'll, you know, really be able to help you as long as you're somebody that's actually contributing value to the community as well. So um, I think that's an awesome lesson there. What, what would you like uh, the audience to walk away with from um, your, uh, your interview here today, Trevor? Um, goals change at all times. I remember when I thought it'd be crazy to have 10 units. I got those 10 units a lot quicker than I thought. I said, holy cow, no way I can get 50. I got 50. And then at about 100, I said, you know what? Whatever I want to do and whatever I want to put my mind to will be easy to do. Start small. I mean, it's really not that hard and basically network too. I mean, you can find me on those subreddits on real estate investing. Ask people, don't be afraid to network. And you know, don't be afraid to take risks. If you've been thinking about starting that business, maybe don't quit your full-time job, but start doing that stuff on the side and try and just, you know, it's, it's not that hard and lean on other people. It's not easy, but anyone can do it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, get your side hustle going. Get used to doing your business, right? Yeah. And get in there, you know? 40 hours a week is part-time until you have enough passive income to do what you want. Yeah, and it's a different world once you have that passive income because you're talking about, you know, you're talking about then being able to make your own decisions in your life or how do you want to be spending your time and what's yes, important to you. You know, and I've got a lot of cool toys, you know, I've got nice cars, things like that. The best thing is that I don't have to answer to anyone. And when it's nice out, like today, like the sun came out, I'm going to go take a walk in the park, man, and just enjoy my day. And a lot of times you can't do that if you're behind a cubicle. It's not necessarily the materialistic thing, but it's the freedom to kind of do as you please. Yeah, that's the time freedom is the new currency, right? <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah, right. It's like we already have, we already probably have more stuff than we really need. We already know after we hit certain income levels, we're actually not any happier yeah. than having shinier toys. But yeah. like having time freedom and location freedom, massive massive difference to give to give it away to others and to not do it because i want you on my book or i want you to buy my subscription to a website but just saying hey two dudes sat me down in a hotel for three hours and let me ask them anything i want and taught me these formulas and all i have to do is give it away to other people so it's kind of that cliche saying the only thing you got to do to keep it is to give it away so i love helping other people 
if you're listening to this and you start becoming successful, always be sure to help the people under you and always take care and listen to the people above you so you can learn. Awesome. Great, great parting words. And, and Trevor, for anybody that uh, is uh, listening here today and they want to connect with you or, um, you know, through what it means, what's the best way for, for people to connect with you? Email me, Trevor Robinson at live.com. T-R-E-V-O-R-R-O-B-I-N-S-O-N at live.com. Just shoot me an email, put in the subject line, like, you know, real estate or investment or something. And I'd love to help out anybody, no strings attached. Yeah, I know you're always putting together deals and always super active. So um, I think that there's probably a lot of value for um, people to be able to grab just in contacting with you. And um, I know Trevor's, you know, we, he came down uh, here into Austin and we got to meet up uh, here and he's always uh, scoping, you know, you know, where's the opportunity at? Um, so I've known him to be somebody that's always on the cutting edge of saying like, where's the deals at? How are we going to find them? What's that going to look like? And being very methodical with it. So, um, that's a huge value guys. Uh, if he's uh, willing to just talk with you about it, um, that's some stuff that I can, I can tell you right now that this, that's some high level conversations. I mean, you've heard it today on the show. Um, and I would expect that to, uh, to continue. And I don't, I don't think he, Trevor even does professional coaching or any of that. No, no, he's I have he's a, just a good old honest guy, you know, no, trying to high, help school, people. high school education. I'm just work my ass off and definitely am methodical, just like you said, but it's been great talking to you. You let me know if you need anything and then, um, we'll talk soon. Thanks, Trevor. As uh, always, guys, this is the Real Estate Nerds Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Royal-Smith. I'm the owner of uh, Royal Legal Solutions, your home for everything real estate asset protection. Thanks so much for joining in, and we'll see you guys again soon. That's all for this Bad Beats episode. I'm your host, Scott Royal-Smith, with the Real Estate Nerds Podcast. Did you see yourself in any part of that story? I know I did. If you enjoyed the show, leave a review to help clue in the sleeping masses of what they need to know and what we all need reminders of. Do your good deed for the day. Thanks, and I'll see you again soon.